Well, again, thank you for being here. I welcome you uh, to this place live and to our online family in uh, the South Valley and in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, and other places. It's good for us to be together this morning. Uh, we're in this series that I developed called The Worst Christmas Ever. This is part three. But before we get to part three, I want to wrap up part two. In the first part, we looked at Mary. and the second part, we looked at Joseph. Uh, and I want to go back to their story and wrap up their story a little bit. It's 12 years after the birth of Christ, uh, but their story continues, and it's still an important part of the story. 12 years later, we read this happened. Every year, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. When I think of the Christmas story, you look at Mary, you look at Joseph, and we considered in the last two weeks who they were and what God chose to do with them and through them and in them. But their story is, is, is a profound story because of who they were even before God chose them for this special role of raising the Messiah. See, I believe who they were, their character was in place long before God chose them because of what we read in these two verses. They traveled to Jerusalem for the yearly Passover. Now, that was expected. It was expected if you lived within a 20-mile radius of Jerusalem to travel for the yearly Passover to Jerusalem. That was expected. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Mary and Joseph lived 60 miles away. They had every reason not to go. Nobody would have faulted them. Nobody had that expectation on them. Nobody would have blamed them for not going to church again. I mean, they were good people. They lived good lives. They didn't have to go all the time. For Mary and Joseph, living 60 miles away, that was, that was their reason not to have to go. But the Bible says every year they went. For them, it was a three or four day trip. Make it a three or four day trip through some hard territory with a junior high boy. That's something special. And the, the other thing that's unique to me about this, as it speaks to who they were as people, their character. If you lived in the 20 mile radius, men were expected to go, women were not. Women didn't have to go. It was okay if they went, but, but they weren't expected to go. Why? Because it was an arduous journey, especially beyond 20 miles. And not only that, if their family had a bunch of kids at home, who was going to stay home and watch the kids? And, and so women were given the, the permission not to go. But Mary went. See, these two, they were of the character and the kind that were both faithful and committed. I tell my football team all the time, there are two types of athletes. One will find an excuse not to. The other will find a reason to. 
Same thing in our Christian lives. Boy, it's real easy to find an excuse not to. Not to go, not to give, not to share, not to invite, not this time. Real easy, right? I mean, not for you, but other people, right? But there's another kind, a cloth that people are cut from, and, and they find a reason to. And both Mary and Joseph found a reason to every year to do what they didn't have, what wasn't, expect, what wasn't required. See, for me now, it, it kind of makes sense why God would start with these two. Because I believe this was their character before the angels ever showed up. And that's why the angels showed up. Sometimes I think, man, wouldn't that be great to be like, like, like Used, used like that, used like these people. Wouldn't it be awesome? And I think, well, maybe, Carl. If you were cut from the same cloth. And so as I was, as I was, as contemplating this passage and, and still thinking about Mary and Joseph, I'm a parent. And I thought, you know, as parents, We've got to make obedience and attendance a priority. I mean, when I was growing up, I'm sure if you've been in church, any, any, if you're an old school church person, you've heard pastors say this before. I had a drug problem growing up. I was drugged to church every time the doors were open. You know, uh, someone asked me once, how would your family be different if you weren't a pastor? It's a fair question. My response was, there'd be nothing that's different. So, so Shell and I don't do what we do. We didn't raise our sons the way we raised our sons because I was a pastor, because I was in ministry. We did what we did. We raised our sons the way we raised our sons because we chose to follow Jesus. Regardless if I'm a pastor in ministry or not. Now, sometimes we didn't do it very well. Sometimes I didn't do it very well. But it had nothing to do with my vocation. I love the fact that Mary and Joseph, they didn't leave it up to their kids if they were going to church or not. They didn't let their kids, well, well I just I don't want to force it on them. I don't want to force them into it. I want them to kind of experience it on their own and choose by their choice to do it. That's ridiculous. I, I would just say this. If you're not married yet, look for someone who's already committed to God, who is making Him and His ways of sacrifice, of attending worship, a priority. If you are married, choose to be committed to God, Him and His ways of sacrifice and attendance. Those things must be a priority. Mary and Joseph's story is profound. And I think as, as I look at the Christmas story, there are so many people in this story for whom it started out as the worst ever. I think it probably started that way for Mary. 
until Jesus showed up. I think it probably started that way for Joseph until Jesus showed up. And there are other people in the Christmas story for whom they could have withdrawn. They could have climbed inside themselves because what they had experienced to the point of Jesus showing up was part of the worst possible ever. So many people in the Christmas story have their own life experience and what their experience was was the worst ever. But they navigated and lived their life in such a way that there's so much for me to learn about how to navigate the worst ever. So in continuing with this series, I I, I wonder if any of us can draw upon our memory to those times when we're living through what one person said is a new cycle of collective dismay. You go back a few years and not only are our world, but certainly our country and our communities, we're living in a continual cycle of collective dismay. Some of you are still living in a cycle of dismay. Some of you are still living in a cycle of dismay and discouragement and loss and loneliness. And part of the Christmas story involves this woman named Anna who had every reason and excuse to live in a cycle of dismay and discouragement and loneliness and loss. We can learn a lot from this lady, Anna. See, Anna, her story is this. She was a young girl, newly married, and excited about building a life with a man that she loved. In love with this man, looking forward to the life that they were just at the beginnings of creating together, Anna had dreams of the home that they would create together. Anna had dreams of the kids that they most certainly would raise together. And no doubt, Anna had dreams of what it would be like for her to be a grandma with all of her grandkids gathered around. Anna had dreams. Anna got married young, probably 14 to 16 years old, as was the custom. And this is what we know about Anna. On the eighth day after Jesus was born, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after being married, after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day fasting, and praying. Here's what we know. Anna was married at maybe 14 years old. The Bible says she was married seven years, and then her husband died. So she was left childless and without husband, apparently. So either this is how this went down. Either 
she was a widow until she was 84 years old. And then we assume she dies at 84 after this account. So that would mean she was married at 14 and then lived 63 years as an unwed widow and then dies at 84. That's one way we understand this, and rightly so. Or equally valid is this, that she lived as a widow for 84 years. So being married at 14, becomes a widow at 21, then lives as a widow for 84 years at the time of this writing, should have been 105. Either one of those is impressive. Either one of those is living a long time with loss and disappointment and seemingly despair. Either way, 84-year-old lady lived 64 years as a widow or 105-year-old lady living 84 years as a widow. Anna. How does she not live in a continual cycle of dismay and discouragement and loss and loneliness? Every year she faces another worst ever because her situation is not changing. Celebrations? Oh, they're not celebratory like they used to be. Some of you understand that. Every year looked like the one before, the worst ever. See, she and one other person that we'll look at next week was waiting and praying for what's called the consolation of Israel. Now, consolation is something that every one of us is wanting, yearning, looking for, and waiting for. We might not call it that. We might call it some different. But it is consolation. I want to put words to your emotion. I'm going to put words to your story. See, consolation is comfort in the wake of loss or disappointment. Every one of us has been through loss. Every one of us has been through disappointment. Some of you are still in the middle of the emotion of that loss, the emotion of that disappointment. And what it is that we seek in the middle of loss and disappointment is consolation, is comfort, right? And there are two in scriptures that were waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. See, let me give a little context where he gives them more content. The people of God during this time were in dis- living in distress. They were overtaxed. They were overworked. And they were living under the oppression of, a, a, of governmental overreach. Most of them were very poor, living hand to, hand to mouth. We would say paycheck to paycheck. Always under their circumstances, never on top of them. And they're in a continual cycle of dismay and discouragement and loss and loneliness. And the people are looking at another worst year ever. I'll tell you the beauty of Christmas. The beauty of Christmas is consolation. Comfort in the wake of loss and disappointment. The beauty of Christmas is the fact of consolation. Listen to what the Bible says. Back to Luke 2. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. Now you know how old she was. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 years old or for 84 years. 
She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Here's what I know. Here, here's some of the things I draw out of this account of this lady, Anna. What I learn is that consolation meets us in our powerlessness. Consolation comes to me in the midst of my powerlessness. The comfort of God meets me when I am weak. Anna had very little to offer regarding power, regarding position, regarding prestige. Anna didn't even have a place of her own. The Bible says she lived in a room at the temple. She's a little old lady. They probably figured, look, old lady, you never leave. We'll give you a broom closet. Why don't you crash in there? I don't know. Maybe because she was known as a prophet, they gave her a little bit of honor, but she had no place of her own. She had no apartment, duplex, or acreage. She was just a little, poor, widowed woman. In the midst of her weakness, the Bible tells us her daddy's name and her lineage. That's significant. Ain't nothing in the Bible that isn't important. We just got to dig a little bit to figure out what its importance is. Her daddy's name was Penuel. The Bible says he was from the tribe of Asher. Why is that important? Well, it's important because of this. Israel is divided into 12 tribes. The land of Israel is cut in half. The northern half was occupied by the 10 northern tribes. And there are two southern tribes in the bottom. And the land of Israel is divided. The top 10 northern tribes are called the tribes of Israel. And the two southern tribes are called the tribes of Judah. So during the course of history, way back in the Old Testament, Assyria and up from the north came down into the northern portion of Israel and took captive the ten northern tribes. And as far as we know from history, they're known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. They kind of drop off the, off the face of the planet. Nobody hears from them. Nobody knows of them. They're just kind of gone. That's significant. After being taken into exile... They're seemingly disappeared from history. Here's why it's significant. Though that may be her history, this woman was never lost to God. The tribe might have seemed as if it was lost, but this woman was never lost to the God who was watching her. Did you know that one of God's names in the Old Testament is Elroy? Not Elroy, but Elroy. It translates the God who sees me. Though others, might forget about you. God never does. How is it that God reaches back into the lost tribes of Israel and sustains this one little lady that will come time when she is old to be known as the daughter of Penuel from the tribe of Asher, one of the tribes that everybody else is from? How does God do that? Because God doesn't lose a person. No matter how lost you may feel, No matter if it feels as though nobody sees you anymore. Though you may feel as everyone's forgotten about you and no one remembers you. You're never lost to God. This lady Anna. She's one of nine prophetesses, legitimate prophetesses in Scripture. Miriam in Exodus 15. Deborah in Judges 4. Huldah in 2 Kings 22, the wife of Isaiah in Isaiah 8, this woman, Anna in Luke 2, and the four daughters of Philip 
in Acts 21. Nine prophetesses in all of Scripture. This little old widow. No power. No prestige. Nothing to speak of her life nor her legacy. She lived in a time that's known as the 400 silent years. They're called the intertestimonial years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. At the time of the last manifestation of God in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, to the time of Jesus' birth was 400 years when it seemed as though God had withdrawn and was silent from His people. There were no more words from the prophets anymore. No public manifestation of God nor His presence. And then, through one little old lady who had nothing to offer but her devotion, she sees the consolation in the flesh. What started for her as another year of probably the worst ever, Jesus showed up. Anna, this old widowed prophetess, her existence sequestered to a little room around the temple. Rather than becoming one of those blue-haired, bitter, lonely, needy, quilt-making, gossip women of the church, You know those busybodies that always has a prayer request and knows everybody's prayer request so they have something to gossip about in church circles? She gave herself to prayer and to worship and to waiting and watching for the consolation that would come only from God. She chose to be married to God and to give herself in wholehearted devotion in seeking Him. And had she, had, had she not embraced her powerlessness, she would not be in a position to see and experience the consolation of God. See, here's what I know when I look at Anna. When I try to prove my importance, when I try to take power, when I try to prove my position, I take myself out of the position of experience the consolation of God, the comfort of Him. Who loves me? See, consolation doesn't come in strength. Consolation doesn't come in power. Consolation only comes in weakness. See, the stronger we think we are, the less we experience the power of God. The way we work ourselves out of the experience of the power of God and the consolation of God is to think we are strong enough to go through the worst of without Him. That's why Paul says, I will glory in my weakness, not in my strength, because in my weakness, his strength is perfected. So when I am weak, he is strong. And if I want to play as though I am weak, I will never experience his strength nor his consolation. So my weakness may feel like the worst ever, but I'll glory in that. Because in that, his strength is manifest. See, what Anna understood is that consolation didn't come in a program. Consolation meets us in a person. How many people 
must have come through the temple throughout Anna's life. How many of them teaching? How many of them preaching? How many of them praying? How many of them leading? How many of them? But none brought the consolation that Anna was waiting for until Jesus showed up. And once Jesus showed up, she knew it. She knew it. It's game on. Her consolation had come. But her consolation and comfort didn't come in political change. Her consolation and comfort didn't come in economic increase. Her consolation didn't come in power and prestige. It came in a person. The person of Jesus. See, I, I, I expect you're somewhat like me. We tend to pin our hopes on the answers we get rather than the one who is the answer. Oh, Anna. She's such a powerful lady. A godly woman. In the midst of what would normally and naturally be and have a reason and excuse to not. What we read is this. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. What Anna knew, what we can learn is that consolation meets us in a person and consolation comes in the midst of our worship, fasting, and praying. When the Bible talks about worship, it talks about praising God. In the midst of praising God, consolation appears. Fasting is that thing that Christ followers do to detach from other things of the world and seek only God. Consolation comes. Praying is talking to God. In the midst of talking to God, communing with Him, consolation comes. See, Anna didn't continue. She was a young 20-something-year-old lady. Young girl. All kinds of hopes. And she didn't continually seek relationships. She didn't continually seek companionship. As a young widow, she didn't go back to her dating apps or Tinder. Anna chose to live a solitary relationship with the God who loved her. And in such relationship, she gave herself wholly to the pursuit of God. She gave herself to the meditation of God, of His character, of His Word, and of the Messiah. And consolation came. It's so significant to realize that consolation came and was revealed in the midst of worship, fasting, and prayer. Praising, seeking, and talking to God. To the one who is our consolation. I don't want consolation. I want the one who is my consolation. And my consolation will come in worship and fasting and prayer. See, most often, when we're in those cycles of dismay, of discouragement, of loss and loneliness, we seek consolation. Every one of us does. But most often we seek consolation to things that are not worship, fasting, and prayer. Oftentimes you try to sanitize our consolation. And if it's anything other than worship, fasting, and prayer, it falls far short. But we try to make it look good and sound good. We try to sanitize it by seeking consolation to talking to people that we trust, by talking to our pastors, by talking to counselors and therapists. Sometimes not so sanitary means by seeking consolation in the Bible or, or in the bottle or seeing consolation in entertainment and, and busyness and habits. Consolation doesn't come in any of those other things. Consolation comes when we're in the midst of worship and fasting and praying. There's much we can learn from this widow Anna. 
in times of her dismay, in times of her discouragement, in times of her loss, in times of her loneliness. We experience the same. And we have a choice in those times. Where it is, we will seek our consolation. Will we go back to the former things that we used to know that we tried that only left us wanting more or we will go to those things shown to us by the old widow's life called Anna? We can learn a lot from Anna. Consolation meets us in the midst of our powerlessness. It meets us in a person. It meets us when we're in the context of worship and fasting and praying. And let me tell you this. When that is the posture of our life in the midst of loss and grief and disappointment, when that is the posture of our life, consolation will come. It will come. And some of you who are in the midst of it right now, you're in the midst of the worst whatever. You're looking down the barrel of the worst whatever. In your mind, you're thinking, I don't know if it ever will come. Well, let me have faith for you when you don't have faith and tell you that it will come. It's in my Bible and it will come. And when it comes, we still learn from Anna. Coming up to them at that very moment, she what? She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When consolation comes, give thanks to God. The first response when God intervenes, the first response when God shows up, the first response when God consoles, is to give thanks to God, who is El Roy, who sees you, who has never taken his eyes off you, is to give thanks to God, the one who will never leave you and who has never forsaken you, to give thanks to God, who is the one who never changes like the shifting shadows, to give thanks to God, who is the one who never sleeps and never slumbers. Our first response must always be to give thanks. Let me tell you why. Not only because God deserves it. I didn't put God deserves it on a slide. I'm going to give you that one as a freebie. You ought to know that one already. But the other reason we give thanks to God, because giving thanks creates spiritual gratitude. When I give thanks, my spiritual memory grows. When I give thanks, my spiritual gratitude grows. See, the act of giving thanks keeps us grateful and content. The act of giving thanks keeps us grateful and content. See, it's the thankful ones who are the most at peace. I am most content in my marriage when I'm thankful for it. I am most content with my job when I'm thankful for it. You know, Last weekend, I had to cut down a tree in my backyard, uh, and it, it wasn't dead. I just needed it removed, uh, and 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 I couldn't get I couldn't get a chainsaw, uh, and so I, I harkened back to the days growing up because I had a daddy that taught me how to do things the forgotten way, the old school way, and so I thought I'm gonna go get my handsaw, and I went and got my handsaw. And I started the process of taking down this big limbs, vibrant tree, was not going to give up the ghost lightly. And I proceeded to go about the process of cutting down this tree 
And what met me was a tree that decided to fight back. And it wasn't long into the process of my battle that my arms grew tired, my hands started to cramp, my back started to ache, and I continued to ran my head up against the branches and started cutting my head. The weather started changing, and I thought, I'm about ready. Start using some words that aren't in the Bible, because I still know some of those. And as I was just getting ready to throw my handsaw across my backyard and to kick my puppy, I stopped for a moment. And I said, God, thank you that I got a healthy body that can fight with this tree. Thank you that I was raised by a daddy that taught me that sometimes Doing the hard things is a good things. Thank you that I got the little one tool that I need to persevere and get this job. Thank you that I got a big tree in my backyard that has served us well over. Thank you that I got a big backyard to have a big tree in because a lot of people don't. Thank you. I told him, I said, God, thank you for the inclement weather that's coming upon us because we sure have been in need of it. Thank you for the chance to have a sore body. And all of a sudden, that backyard battle with that tree became a moment of great consolation and peace. If this is one of the worst ever for you, I want to encourage you to start giving thanks. Begin giving thanks for all God has already done. Start giving thanks for how He has showed up for all he has shown you for the grace he's already given for the fact that his mercies are new every morning and that his faithfulness is great give thanks for the consolation that's already come the bible says that if i don't praise god the rocks will do it in my stead i ain't gonna let no rock i'm not gonna sacrifice the honor and the privilege of praising god to a dirt clot One of the things I love about my family growing up at Christmas time, my mom and daddy did a really good job. When we would gather around for Christmas presents, be many or few, didn't matter. Homemade or store-bought, didn't matter. As one person, we would all stop and watch one person open their one, a gift. And when they were done opening that gift, that person would tell the person, thank you, and give them a hug, whoever gave them that gift. We took it and went person by person by person making sure that the gift was received, appreciated, and thanks was expressed. Even to Santa. Told Santa, thank you too. We did the same for our kids. And we still do that. As adults. See, there are a few things more repulsive and more entitled than receiving a gift and not stopping and saying thank you and expressing gratitude. See, I love this about Anna. There's one more thing. Let me wrap up with this. 
coming up to them at that very moment, she gave things to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's what I love about this old gal. Consolation grows the more it's shared. The, the, the more, it's, the, more the, the hope and the comfort of God is experienced, the more it's shared, the more it's experienced, the more it's experienced, the more it's shared, the more it's shared, the more it's shared, the more it's shared. The more it's shared. When Anna experienced the consolation that she had been praying for, that she had been seeing, when she finally felt it in her heart, what had been her greatest desire. See, she could have cherished these things in her heart as Mary did after the visitation of the angel. But Anna, Anna wasn't of the kind that would cherish it in her heart. Why? Because she's an old lady and old people say whatever's on their mind. And what was on her mind was the consolation of God that she just experienced. And so it says she spoke about the child to all, to everybody. She couldn't keep it to herself, and she wouldn't keep it to herself. And what Anna knew is that everyone in her huddle must know of the consolation she found. I mean, there, there, there's, there's, something, there's something great about being old. You don't have to watch your language and your words anymore. You're old. She's 84. She's 105. What, what, what 84-year-old person, what 100-year-old person watches what they say? Some of you are getting close to that, and you know you don't. She doesn't care anymore what people say. She doesn't care anymore what people think. She knows I've experienced the consolation of God. I'm going to tell everybody I can. I don't care what you, I don't care how it sounds to you. See, there's something powerful when you get to that point in your life when you got nothing to prove and no one to impress. I got nothing to prove. I'm going to tell you about my God. I got no, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm going to tell you about the consolation I found in God. And because of that, she told everybody. She didn't care how they responded. It wasn't all her, her only responsibility was to tell the story. And she told it to everybody. And the same is true for us. When we experience the consolation that comes from God, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We can't keep it from our huddle. Those people that are in our house and in our lives. And the more we share it, the more we're convinced of it. And the more we're convinced of it, the more we share it. Listen, if you have experienced the consolation of God, and don't have the habit of sharing it with those around you in your huddle. You might be a believer, but you're not yet a disciple. You understand? If you're a follower of Jesus, and there are people in your huddle that there's not a constant importing, of your experience of the consolation of God. Might dangerously be on the verge of being one of those religious people Jesus railed against. So the more we share it, the more we're convinced it, the more I convince it, the more I'll share it. And Christmas season is a great time to share if you've had experience with Jesus, that experience with your huddle. 
and to at least invite them to, at least invite them to Christmas Eve service. Well, we made it so easy for you. We gave those little invite cards. We made it super, super easy for you. Let me wrap this up here. If you're in the worst Christmas ever, if you're in the worst ever, let, let, me, let, me, let me make sure you understand this. You're not the first to be there. As personal as it may feel, you're not the first one to experience it. You're not the first one to go through it. God's name, Elroy. Like the generations before, as he's seen them in it, he sees you in it too. And because you're not the first to go through it, it means it is not unknown territory to God nor His people. God doesn't change. He has walked through every one of us through the valley of the shadow of death. He has traversed with every one of us. We've trodden the path of the worst ever. It may be new to us, but we're not the only ones to go through it and it is not new to God. And so the way it changes from the worst ever is to invite Jesus into it. Because He's been there. He's been out of it. He's beyond it. In the context of this right now, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask you just kind of to close your eyes, bow your heads, nothing special about that. Just, it just helps you focus now. And if you're in the worst ever, I want you to do a little time. I'm going to encourage you to do a little bit of time with this God whose name is El Roy, who sees you. With the consolation, the comfort of Almighty God that has come to be known by you. And I invite you in this moment before that God to acknowledge your powerlessness. The fact that you are probably in something that is bigger than you. That's beyond you. That you've not been able to handle, manage, nor change. That you are powerless against the disappointment of this thing that is the worst ever. And in the midst of your powerlessness, invite Jesus, the person of Jesus, into that. Don't play strong, don't play adequate. Invite Jesus in the midst of that. And then commit yourself to staying in the position of worship, which is praising God. In the position of seeking God. In the position of fasting and of prayer, talking to God. Keep yourself in that place. Psalm 91 says, I dwell in the secret place of the Most High. That secret place is worship and prayer. I dwell in the secret place. I keep myself in the position of worship and fasting and prayer that I might dwell under the shadow of my sustainer. 
Keep yourself in that place. And then develop this context of your life of giving thanks to God for what He's already done, for how He's already showed up, for what He's already showed you, what He's already spoken to you, how He has already intervened and acted even in your past, knowing that His history in the past is the prediction of the future. He hadn't changed. Giving thanks for the fact that He is Emmanuel. God is with us. And then keep yourself in that position as you go about your week in sharing what He's already done and developing that gratitude. Though you may be in the worst ever, gratitude for the fact that Jesus has showed up. For His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. God, You've already showed up. You've already proven your love. We want to stay in this position of giving you thanks for all you've done. And as we give thanks for all you've done, that is our faith. That is our trust. That is our pronouncement that we believe you're going to keep doing. That we believe you're going to continue to show, that you're going to continue to give us the consolation of our souls. God, thank You that You love us. You loved us so much You sent Your Son to this earth that we could experience the consolation of the heart of the Father. Comfort in the midst of all. Comfort in the midst of dismay. Comfort in the midst of the worst ever. Thank You that You so love. Father, we love You back. You are a good God. We stand and worship and praise you. You are our consolation, and we will seek it nowhere else. If it doesn't come from you, let it not come. But if it is of you, let it come. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Let's sing.